Hey, Cricket customers, Max with ads is included with your Cricket $60 unlimited plan at no additional cost. Nice! Max is the streaming platform where you can watch Scoob, Meg 2 The Trench, The Nightmare on Elm Street Collection, and so much more. Remember me. Just log in with your Cricket username and password to experience Max on all your favorite devices. We've never seen this before. Max, the one to watch for a good scream with Cricket. Yeah! Phone plan, streams, and standard definition. Programming subject to change. Fees, terms, and restrictions apply. See cricketwireless.com for details. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Tuesday, April 27th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Why the story of aerospace engineer Judith Love Cohen, who helped rescue the Apollo 13 astronauts, is making the rounds again, and why we should remember her name. A new ice cube tray-shaped retinal patch that could help restore vision. And the rattlesnake-like jumping worms invading the American Midwest. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So this story was making the rounds over the weekend, and funnily enough, when I went to confirm its authenticity, I got led back to a 2019 post from Kotke.org. As usual, Jason was ahead of the game. The story is that of aerospace engineer and unsung hero Judith Love Cohen. While she did most of her work as an engineer on NASA projects like the Pioneer, Apollo, and Hubble missions, she also spent time as a ballet dancer at the New York Metropolitan Opera Ballet Company, wrote and published books to encourage girls to enter STEM fields, and was a lifelong advocate for women's rights in the workplace. Here's how a 1999 profile of Cohen in the LA Times described her upbringing, quote, The women in Judith Love Cohen's family, her mother and aunts, worked at Great Uncle Harry's dress factory in Brooklyn, and that was that. Growing up in the 40s, Cohen sewed lace doilies at home, but for fun, she turned to her father, a soda salesman, who taught her basic geometry by using ashtrays to demonstrate lines, angles, and equations. By fifth grade, kids started paying Cohen to do their math homework. In junior high school, she was the only girl in intermediate algebra. In high school, she won a state scholarship to Brooklyn College and thought about becoming a math teacher. But her guidance counselor told her that girls don't go into math or science. You know, Judy, the 66-year-old Cohen remembers her counselor telling her, I think you ought to go to a nice finishing school and learn to be a lady. Instead, Cohen earned engineering degrees at USC and worked on NASA projects. End quote. She wasn't just a scientist, however, like I said. In her obituary from 2016, her son Neil, a professor of engineering at the University of Southern California himself, explains that at age 19, while studying engineering at Brooklyn College on that scholarship, she was also a dancer in the corps de ballet at the New York Met. People that talented in so many disparate fields just blow my mind. And it was at that time that she met her first husband, Bernard Siegel, also an engineer, and they moved to Southern California, where she completed her bachelor's and master's degrees in electrical engineering at USC, and then worked full-time as an engineer while having her first three children. She also got back into dancing at that time, albeit recreationally. She divorced Siegel in the mid-60s and soon after married another man named Tom Black, and it was around this time that she was working on the abort guidance system in the lunar excursion module for the Apollo space program, the very system that ended up bringing the Apollo 13 astronauts home safely in 1970. But a few months before that fateful mission, Cohen had another remarkable day at work. In August of 1969, when she was expecting the birth of her fourth child, she went into work as usual and only left to go to the hospital when she absolutely had to. As her older son Neil recounts it, quote, 
When it was time to go to the hospital, she took with her a computer printout of the problem she was working on. Later that day, she called her boss and told him that she had solved the problem. And, oh yes, the baby was born too. End quote. Or, as a post about her that went viral on Reddit over the weekend describes it, quote, She called her boss and said she finished the problem and gave birth to Jack Black. End quote. Yes, that's Jack Black, this remarkably accomplished engineer who literally helped save the Apollo 13 astronauts, was also the mother of the lead singer of Tenacious D. Without her, we wouldn't have the gift to humanity that is School of Rock, or Jack Black's ridiculous speedo-clad TikToks that have been getting me through the pandemic. Her connection to Jack Black and his couple of viral moments over the past few weeks are why her story has been making the rounds again, And the connection is pretty awesome. I know you might think I buried the lead here, but I do want to give her story room to shine on its own because it's a remarkable one. As Jason said in his 2019 Kotki.org profile of her, quote, it's difficult to imagine a better role model than Cohen, end quote. For example, going into work on the day she was giving birth and even taking her work with her to the hospital room, that might have been a sign of her enthusiasm for her job, but it may also have been the reality of how few women worked as engineers back then, and therefore the fact that maternity policies may not have even existed in her department for her to take advantage of. Now, whether that particular issue was something Cohen worked on, I'm not sure, but she was a tireless advocate for women's treatment in the workplace, especially in STEM fields. Her son Neil credits her with implementing policies like formal job descriptions for every position in the company and posting job openings internally, practices that create equality and transparency for employees. And even after she retired, with one of her final projects being running the systems engineering for the ground facility of the Hubble Space Telescope, no big deal, she kept up the fight to make sure future generations of women would be treated better. In the 90s, she wrote a series of STEM-focused middle-grade books for girls with titles like You Can Be a Woman Engineer and You Can Be a Woman Chemist. Her then-husband, David Katz, helped her illustrate and then publish the first book when they couldn't find a traditional publisher, and the series then expanded to a ton of different professions with different authors, all published by her and Katz's new publishing company. The series even includes You Can Be a Woman Animator, which was published in collaboration with the Shark Tale animated film starring her son Jack. All told, they sold over 100,000 of the books and created lesson kits used around the nation. The books aren't super available now, I couldn't find them on most independent bookstore or library catalogs, and even on Amazon, the ones that are available are being sold for upwards of $800. But when she was publishing them, Cohen used to remark that the ultimate goal would be for the books to become unnecessary, for the girl and woman emphasis in the titles to be redundant, because girls would already grow up knowing they could be anything. And I'm not saying we've completely hit that point. The pay gap is real, and there's all kinds of other gender bias and discrimination at play in the workplace. But when Cohen started her career in the 60s, only 0.5% of engineers were women, and she was told outright that she couldn't do it. Now, we may have only raised that number to 13%, but at least girls nowadays are actively encouraged to break that mold. Cohen is a great example of someone who didn't just accept her success for herself— but fought her entire life to make sure she wasn't a special exception, but rather, the first of many. Scientists at the University of Wisconsin-Madison have developed a new retinal patch that could help restore vision in the tens of millions of people worldwide with vision loss caused by deteriorative disorders of the retina. 
So when the light-sensitive photoreceptors in our retinas, which enable vision, are damaged either by accidents or by disease, our bodies aren't able to regenerate them. Close to a decade ago, researchers at UW-Madison were able to grow photoreceptors in the lab using human pluripotent stem cells, but the difficulty came in delivering those photoreceptors to the right place in the eye so that they could form the necessary connections to reconstruct the retina. Now, they have developed a synthetic patch to hold the photoreceptor cells, which can be implanted under the damaged retina, allowing it to regenerate. Quoting New Atlas, A previous effort involved wine glass-shaped pores to accommodate the photoreceptor cells, though the scientists weren't happy with the quantity it could carry, so they continued with their experimentation. The second generation of their implantable scaffold takes the shape of an ice cube tray and can hold three times as many photoreceptor cells, 300,000 of them in all, and features cylindrical holes on the underside so these cells can connect with the patient's retinal tissue as they mature. It's made from a biocompatible material called polyglycerol sebicate that offers the necessary mechanical strength but is safely metabolized by the body after it serves its purpose. We wanted the material to be very strong, and in the eye, it degrades pretty quickly over about two months, says graduate student and co-first author Allison Ludwig. That's ideal for the human retina, end quote. To create the ice cube tray design, the team developed a micro-molding technique that may be replicable for other biomedical applications in the future. Quoting UW-Madison News, to achieve highly ordered 3D ice cube tray-shaped microstructures from the biodegradable and biocompatible PGS films with micron-sized features, they developed multi-step micro-molding techniques that can transfer patterns to flexible polymer films. The final scaffold fabrication work was tedious and frustrating. Fractures and imperfections occurred on the soft scaffolds during demounting from the micromolds, rendering the micromolds inoperable for further use. But co-first author Inky Lee ultimately discovered that soaking the scaffold in isopropyl alcohol allowed it to release cleanly. Using this approach, the team was able to reliably demount the scaffold from micromolds without surface defects and retain the mold's microstructures, maintaining the mold's surface integrity for reuse, end quote. Professor of Electrical and Computer Engineering Shang Jiang Ma says this will make mass production immediately possible and commercialization very easy. They've filed a patent for the fabrication method and are working to optimize it for faster production. The next step is testing it in large animals, and if that goes well, in humans. David Gam, director of the McPherson Eye Research Institute and professor of ophthalmology and visual sciences at the UW School of Medicine and Public Health, told UW-Madison, quote, we're hoping that these early-generation retinal patches will be safe and restore some vision. Then we'll be able to innovate and improve upon the technology and the outcomes over time. We didn't start out with supercomputers on our wrists, and we're not going to start out by completely erasing blindness in our first attempt. But we're very excited about taking a significant step in that direction. End quote. First, there were the murder hornets, and now come the superworms. Described by various outlets as highly invasive jumping worms that violently thrash if handled, these topsoil-destroying worms have been spotted in 15 U.S. states. Native to Eastern Asia, this genus of worm made its way to America, it's believed, back in the 19th century on board cargo shipments of plants and other agricultural materials, or possibly as fishing bait. As such, it was originally limited to the coasts, but over the decades has spread inland to the Midwest. Quoting Smithsonian Magazine, 
The invasive worm resembles the more common European nightcrawler, but is slightly smaller, a brownish color rather than pink, and appears sleeker and smoother, reports Newsweek. The segmented invertebrates are also known as Asian jumping worms, crazy worms, Alabama jumpers, and snake worms. As their various names suggest, these worms thrash and snap their bodies intensely like a rattlesnake when touched or held, can spring into the air, and even shed their tail to escape, PBS Wisconsin reports. The jumping worm's ability to reproduce without mating, proliferate quickly, and lay eggs that can resemble the soil are a few qualities that make the worm extremely invasive, reported Cindy Dampier for the Chicago Tribune. As the worm rapidly depletes topsoil of all nutrients, it outcompetes native fungi species and other non-native worm species, PBS Wisconsin reports. As a result, native plants in the Midwest that once grabbed hold of the region's heavy clay topsoil may have a harder time growing. Plants need that layer in order to germinate, says Brad Herrick, an ecologist at the University of Wisconsin to the Chicago Tribune, and trees need it in order to survive. While adult jumping worms do not survive frigid Midwestern winters, their egg casings do, Newsweek reports. Currently, no viable methods to control the spread of the jumping worms or rid them from already infested forests exist. End quote. So, you know, cool. Now, while there's no way to control the spread en masse, Newsweek does have some tips if you spot them in your yard. Quote, Remove adult jumping worms, place adults in a plastic bag, and leave in the sun at least 10 minutes. Dispose of the bag in the trash. Do not buy jumping worms for bait, vermicomposting, or gardening, and only purchase compost or organic matter that has been heated to appropriate temperatures and duration to reduce the spread of pathogens, insects, and weeds. Jumping worm egg casings do not survive temperatures over 104 degrees Fahrenheit. End quote. And despite the rush of headlines about these jumping worms, there's no indication that they are, as Sam S. joked on Twitter, immersive marketing for the upcoming Dune reboot. But hey, if you do encounter one of these in person, Molly Lambert on Twitter says, just remember, fear is the mind killer. So I know not all of our listeners are from the U.S., which is why I resisted the urge to make half the show about this today, but the results of the United States' once-a-decade census have just been released, and there were a few intriguing takeaways. First, the growth of our nation's population decreased compared to the last decade, from 2000 to 2010. But not just compared to that decade. This is actually the slowest rate of population growth in the U.S. since the decade of the Great Depression. So, wow. And that's just the rate of growth, though. The population has more than doubled since then, sitting now at just over 331 million. The census count also helps determine how many congressional seats each state gets, and there were some guesses about which states might pick up more and which might lose some, but the results still surprised people. Notably, my current state of New York is losing a seat, but we were only 89 people short of losing that seat, the narrowest population margin since this method was enacted in the 40s. And that amount is negligible enough that a lot of people are wondering if awareness and accessibility campaigns about the census had just been a bit better we might not have lost the seat. And it is also important to note that the window for filling out the census concluded right as New York City was becoming the epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak this time last year. 
But meanwhile, my home state of Texas managed to pick up two more seats, the most any state added this go-round, and the Texas Tribune points out that that's largely due to an increase in residents of color, so I will optimistically hope that subsequent redistricting honors that. And while there were six states that gained congressional seats and seven that lost seats, journalist Phil Jankowski pointed out on Twitter that this actually represents, quote, the least amount of seats shifted by census reapportionment since current methodology was adopted for the 1940 census, end quote. So in some ways, the biggest news of the census is just how little actually changed or by how small of margins some things did. There are a lot more fascinating takeaways and implications here, but so I don't bore the non-US listeners, I'll just say to check out the links in the show notes for more. But that is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.